Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. This is Jeff Krasnow. Okay, today I welcome back Dr. Zach Bush. Over the past year, Zach and I have had a number of dynamic and far-reaching conversations examining a wide variety of topics, including the roots of human disease, the microbiome, the impacts of industrial farming, and the relationship between soil health and human health. Now, for those unfamiliar with Zach, he is a triple board certified physician specializing in internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care. He is a highly influential and respected thought leader on the microbiome and its relationship to health, disease, and food systems. Zach is also an expert on soil ecology and water systems and their connection to genomics, immunity, and gut-brain health. Zach's work broadly highlights the desperate need for a radical departure from chemical farming and a healthcare system that is overly reliant on pharmaceuticals. In that vein, Zach has helped raise a fund to help conventional farmers transition to regenerative practices. Zach believes humanity is at a tipping point, that we are in the midst of the sixth great extinction. And today's conversation goes upstream to examine the cultural and psychological forces at play that have led us to this place of climate crisis, loss of species and habitat, soil decimation, and widespread chronic disease. We explore what could be the next phase of human evolution. Now, Zach and I are both keenly interested in the metaphysical and the physical, and how the immaterial, the world of spirit, is patterned in the natural systems of biology. So prior to recording this podcast, we collaborated on a new course on the microbiome, which will debut fall 2022. We also convened a day-long mastermind on soil, featuring a variety of regenerative land stewards, innovators, and activists. That content will also be released in the fall as part of a digital soil summit. 
Zach currently has a fantastic course on Commune called Vital Health. I've personally taken it three or four times. It is just chock full of information. And you can take it with a 14-day free trial of Commune membership. Just go to onecommune.com slash Zach Bush. Zach is as much poet as he is physician, and this episode does not disappoint. And so it was a thrill to be with him, and it catapults my thought processes forward every time. I hope he has the same impact on you. So without further delay, I present to you Dr. Zach Bush. Well, welcome home. Thanks, man. Beautiful. I know. You know, I, I got here a little bit early, and the marine layer was burning off, and I was like, man, God kissed this little property on the forehead. <laughs> no <laughs> doubt. And it was just like, man, this is good. Um, and, uh, yeah, man, you know, I feel like you and I have also started to develop history <laughs> here absolutely um and that's special i mean you know I, I try to remain relatively equanimous about possession and <laughs> but place is a little bit different than possession yeah and um and you know we've done this now a few times and i've uh, slept here for weeks at this point i think for the last <laughs> couple of years and so it, there's a sense of second home here for sure and that i like what you say about the you can't actually own a place you can technically on paper you can own a house of course you really never own it your bank owns it or the government actually ultimately has complete purview over that situation but we can convince ourselves we own a, a place uh, or a home rather but a place is, is so much greater than a, a house in it and I really love what you guys have done at Commune here for elevating the role of the ecosystem for sure. But the role of community within that sense of place mm -hmm. is a powerful thing to be a part of. And uh, in a world of digital content and all this I've been immersed in the last 10 years, it's glorious to be creating content across the lens of a camera when I'm surrounded by friends in that room yeah. and your crew has become deep friends to me over these years. And I really have a sense of kinship with them. I, I have a sense of curiosity about what's happened since the last time I saw them. And that's what creates that place. That sense of place is really experience of a vessel that holds relationships. Yeah. And in that comfort there, there are no errors, you know, there's just, um, there's no ego. Um, and you know, I, I do, uh, we're going, we'll pull on a lot of different threads as we always do. Well, um, the, the first yeah. thread I'll pull on then is there are no errors because they've told me that my blooper reel is longer than it's ever been. So <laughs> your, your team sees no errors. They just see opportunity to make fun of me. <laughs> yeah. We will eventually amass enough material for a, uh, a Zach Bush a bloopers course. Blooper reel. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have a, a bloopinar um that will launch but I, you know i i um there is this uh, interesting 
tension between this notion of, of ownership and property versus natural rights. And maybe we'll pull on that eventually. But let me um, begin by setting it up this way. And I feel like um, it, you have an advantage because you've just channeled the wisdom of Charles Eisenstein. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming off a strong <laughs> couple hours in my head of you here. <laughs> um, so, you know, I was um, listening to the news, if you can imagine, on the way up and just more curious about what's happening in Yosemite. So mm -hmm. there's a fire mm -hmm. there per as per custom now. Um, and, uh, you know, we're losing these um, thousand-year-old sequoias. I mean, these things, I've spent a, month, a good amount of time in the redwoods. I mean, these things are like four feet around. And, you know, we're, this is not new per se, this loss of habitat, the loss of species, the degradation of soil um, could be seen in some ways as, as symptoms of this sixth great extinction that, um, that you so eloquently talk about. And um, obviously there have been five previous ones, the last one being somewhere in the 60 million years ago realm. Um, but this one is different such that uh, it's not a natural cause. It's not a, um, it's not a meteor hitting the Yucatan and creating a nuclear winter and degrading soil health and creating ocean acidity. It has a different source. Um, so, and I, I'd like to talk a little bit about what that source is and move significantly upstream because one thing that you said um, on Sunday uh, when we convened a, a group around soil health uh, and one thing that Charles talks a, quite about a lot about is this story of separation mm -hmm. that the substrate or the root cause of a lot of these societal diseases or loss of habitat or loss of species has its genesis in something more spiritual, um, if you will, this notion of separation that we, as a product of our direct experience, feel separate from nature and by extension, separate from each other and separate from the divine and feel in competition then with those things. Now, I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that and how we arrived there at that feeling. You hit on a notion there of sovereignty in the midst of all of that, you know, so there's a really phenomenal thought that came through there, which is all of its natural cause. We are of nature. Our behavior is of nature. No matter how technologic it looks, no matter how human and unnatural it looks, it's all natural because it's coming out of an organismic expression, perhaps an orgasmic expression of life. Like life is freaking exuberant. And so for all the things we've created, we can have long debates as to whether technology is good or bad or what In the end, having judgment over anything is a load of wasted time. So there's no judgment on the fact that we have created a, a death of an era 
And we've done it many times. We've destroyed empires and they rise again. We destroy the empire. And so the rise and fall of human ingenuity, human construction is, is inevitable. It's, it's really, uh, it is a natural phenomena that we are playing out. And so whether it's nuclear holocausts or an asteroid that finishes the earth, both are natural causes. And cancer is ultimately a natural phenomenon. And so that we have become a cell within this complex ecosystem of millions of species cohabitating on a planet. And one of those cells has become malignant in its nature. And as cancer does in its isolation from its environment, it starts to behave in an extractive way. And so you asked about property, uh, you know, and the notion of ownership. The moment we have the notion of ownership is the moment we became the malignant cell. Because the concept of ownership is you're going to go and, and suddenly separate something from the whole and say, this is, this is mine. And so the moment we built the first fence in North America was the moment that, you know, we set our malignant metastases of the, the colonial mind upon this sector of the planet and where we had just set that fence up down there my family arrived right there jamestown 1617 like 10 years after it was founded the bush family arrives john bush comes in and john bush the, he's he was actually junior so john bush jr arrives from you know coming in from the uk but he was actually scotch irish and got here and john bush comes in and he, he decides he's, he, he needs to make his mark in this, you know, stake out his claim in this new world. And so works for a while at, at, in Jamestown, gets a little bit of sense of identity in the community, sense of capacity, and goes out to stake his claim. And so goes out into what was at the time, you know, uh, you know a, a region of Virginia there, and he set up a fence. And he, he put this thing out there. He's like, this is mine. And at that moment, North America, which was one of the most extraordinarily diverse ecosystems on the planet, every single imaginable climate on the planet was represented on this continent. Uh, at that moment, he eliminated 99.9999% of what North America had to offer and said, this is mine. And in so doing, he became an isolated phenomenon. And so he immediately eliminated itself. And the other 99.99% of North America was 600 nations of indigenous peoples, 600 separate autonomous nations that were in North America at the time that were working through natural law and governance that understood no ownership, but understood stewardship, understood the phenomenon of a sharing economy, understood the concept of gifting economies. To this day, those traditions hold. It's recently on the Navajo Nation with an extraordinary deep friend of mine. And the experience of meeting her grandmother and meeting, you know, four generations of the Diné people there in the Navajo Nation, it is an overwhelming forced practice in receiving. They give you so much. They give you so much time, wisdom, food insights, patience, stories, 
keep the fire stoked all night long as you sleep in the Hogan to make sure you're cared for. This level of care doesn't happen in Western civilization, you know? Yeah. And so there's a memory of natural law that is imbued in them. And the beginning of natural law is to understand a state of abundance. And so when you are in a state of abundance, your first notion as a creative mind is what can I give this person? They just showed up. I have a guest. What can I give them? And they always give the best thing they can do. So they slaughter a sheep and they serve you half the head. That's you know, age old, thousands of year old practices. Give them the most precious commodity we have because they're our guest and we have abundance. You set up the fence, you rule out 99.9% .9 in the effort to own something. In the effort for security, you've now created isolation. You've now created scarcity. And in creating scarcity, you now have created the cancer cell phenomenon. And you have to start to figure out how to be extractive to the around area around you to bring those resources in. Because your little plot inside the fence can't actually create everything. It was one cell. And now you've become reliant on a single system. And so now you have to go out, send out some sort of force that will extract from the greater environment. And unfortunately, a lot of other people own that stuff. So you either got to beat them up, take it away from them, or you got to figure out some sort of system of economy to try to try to barter or buy that stuff over here. And pretty soon you're spending all of your effort to recreate the whole in your one little cell. And that's actually what a cancer cell does at the, at the cost of the death of the organism. And so the human will die in the effort of this one cell to try to recreate the whole within that single cell. I've heard you talk about the second law of thermodynamics, I mm. believe, which is um, essentially any closed system moves into entropy. De devolves into chaos yep. and when you talk about the fence immediately what pops into mind is this iconic american image of the picket fence right you know this 50s mentality of i'm going to have my house and i'm going to uh separate it from everybody with this iconic white picket fence and you know when you try to trace uh, back the, the origins of this scarcity mentality and you go back you know 12,000 years or so um, to uh, nomadic foragers which um, which more like what the Navajo Nation may still be is 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 um, embracing notions of animism essentially that one feels part of nature and that the divine is everywhere in nature and that rocks and trees are sentient, are conscious, they're sensitive. Um, and then, of course, we moved into the, the agricultural revolution, which was essentially about, you know, domesticating crops and animals and, and by extension, domesticating ourselves, literally putting ourselves into domesticity. Um, and with that came the rise of property rights. And then, you know, we saw the divine right of kings. I said, no, those, pro those properties is ours. And even in, uh, and I've heard you talk about this, um, but even in our greatest pieces of, of founding literature in the United States, 
we even though we were repudiating the divine right of kings like in the declaration of independence we were also creating a substrate for property for ownership in fact you know jefferson's declaration of independence was borrowed directly from john locke who said that a natural right is life liberty and property so we were um, polluting the notion of natural rights and uh, conflating it with property rights. And of course, we know even though that the intention of, of some of those founding documents was uh, highly principled, we also know that the reality of the application of those principles was patently unfair. And that who had the rights to those properties? Well, they were white Christian men. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, we have continued to um, propagate that, um, that mythology of separation. And I guess uh, one question I sort of wanted to ask you, because I know um, that you're into A Course in Miracles, and I know Marianne very well, and she introduced me to, to that tome, is that are we almost pre-programmed to feel separate as humans? And I, I think that The Course in Miracles addresses that in some ways. And do we then need some kind of epiphany or mystical experience to bring us back to a feeling of connectedness? Yeah, The Course in Miracles outlines you know, a profound and really fundamentally disturbing premise that around this sensory state of the separation and the first time i heard this next sentence it was very disorienting to me because i've i have really worshipped the human body and for its miracle like i <laughs> i can get myself so down the rabbit hole of gratitude and awe of the human body that i can forget to eat like i'm just like so dumbfounded by this freaking <laughs> machine we have so i have this awe of our design, I have awe of the miraculous nature of 70 trillion cells working in concert to make all these organ systems. The Course of Miracles has the premise that our five senses were designed to give us the impression of separateness. And that's disturbing to me. I'm like, wait, that sounds really volitional. The five senses were designed to give us the experience of separateness. And so it's like, well, wait, is that, is that saying that there's a God that wanted us to fail here? Or is that the, the model here? Or is there, what was designed to do that separateness? And, but uh, over the last year, I've been trying to unpack that <laughs> single sentence in an effort to find myself back into the wonder of my senses, because I think they're awesome. Yeah, I just, I love watching a sunset. I love the smell of uh, that incredible experience that you get you just came back from paris but uh when you when you're kind of preparing the mirepoix that'll be that in the soup you know and so you dice the celery you dice the onion and you just are supposed to like just simmer that celery and onion down for a good while before you add the broth and the smell of celery and onion cooking together is truly intoxicating it, it, it can take me into this orgasmic state of awareness of just like oh my gosh and then and then you have this beautiful anticipation of tasting the soup in the next couple hours and you add the broth and you chop the carrots and you get all your herbs going and you've got 
you know, a little bit of tarragon in there and you got all this garlic in there and you've got the black pepper that grinds in at the end and you're sitting down you've got this whole anticipatory experience you've been salivating for hours because it's so pleasurable just to smell the food but the more pleasurable thing than the smell of the food is actually the banter of chatter in the kitchen as you're preparing the soup for a couple hours and kids come and go and neighbor comes over and you're experiencing fellowship around that those five senses are are a blessing. These are this is our opportunity. So, what does it mean when the five senses were designed to give us the sense of separateness? The non-egoic experience of separateness is, I think, our highest calling as to be human, which is to say that we are to be a witness. To be a witness to something, you have to have a momentary distance from the thing that you're about to witness. If you were the sunset, you couldn't sit there and watch the sunset. You'd be too busy being the sunset. Our five senses were gifted to an organism such that we would have the experience of being set on that little pedestal next to the sunset that we could watch it from. And this is really the story, if you go into the Hebrew around um, the the words that speak about our role uh, as humans, and then it's mimicked in the Greek too, in, in the New Testament, and uh, kind of post Christ energy kind of experience that humanity had there. Both reflect on the fact that humanity is the bride of the I am, and so the Yahweh, the I am state of you know, the divine creative force within our universe and probably far beyond the universe. Well, we could talk about it if you want. The, our universe can't be an isolated system for the reason you pointed out, second law of thermodynamics. If, if the universe was all there was, we would have a chaotic universe. We would have to see an increasing amount of entropy all the time. And we don't. Even the most pessimistic of astrophysicists seem to agree that, well, shoot, it seems really balanced. Like there is no increase. Maybe it's not completely centropic, but it's definitely not entropic. Uh, so entropy means increasing amount of organization, entropy decreasing amount of organization. There seems to be this real preference for balance within these two systems. So if that's true, that the universe is not chaotic, which is now the, the collective scientific agreement, then we cannot be alone. So the universe is not alone. So what is the creative force that would think of a universe that's over here? What's outside of our universe? There's got to be something. There's a platform over there that somebody could stand on and say, what a beautiful universe that is. But when our, we're in the black hole of our universe, universe functions as black hole, light can't escape it. So when we're in the black hole, we can't see the damn thing. But what if there's a cosmos out there beyond the universe where there's so many stars that you can actually see the black hole of this universe for its little pause in the little dark hole in the midst of all the light that's among all the other universes. So perhaps from this little pedestal out there where there's some sentient awareness that's looking back at our universe, it can be observed because a black hole can be seen in the context of the, the stars around and you see how it bends light. You can see all this stuff. So somebody's capable of seeing us bend light because we're not alone as a universe. And as we zoom in and we get back into our universe and we come down into this incredible state of being present as humans and gifted with five senses that give us the impression of separateness. It allows us to view the beauty and to see beauty is to experience love. And so being the bride of Christ as the new Testament would have it written to be the bride of Christ is, is means you are being witness to the divine 
you are that partner that can look back at the other and wonder in a state of beauty at, at your partner and fall in love for the beauty. That experience then is corrupted when we allow the five senses that were designed to make us believe we were separate to believe that that separateness was a, a fence line. Was suddenly, oh, okay, I'm over here, you're over there, I, we must be separate. And so uh, this is my body, not yours. So I'm gonna, I, I, I wanna have the best food, but I, th there, I think there's probably not enough best food on the planet. So maybe I could engineer some food for you that would take less of the best, but I'll put lots of fat, salt, sugar in yours and you'll think it's really good. And so I'm gonna serve you this kind of crappy meal, but I've figured out neurochemistry. So here's a fat, salt, sugar combination that I think is gonna give you a dopamine rush over there. And, and that's good. I'm gonna I'm gonna really enjoy my mirepoix in my soup over here uh, because that's, that's what I enjoy. And I'm separate from you, so no loss on my part that you're not getting the mirepoix. So for that sense of separateness that the five senses allow us, when an egoic system steps in of ownership you're over there, that sense of separateness starts to become this encroaching belief of disconnect. That's where we start to behave as a malignant force. But, but I want to see you, Jeff. I want to be able to see the beauty in you. And I want to be able to see that without the gift of five senses that would make me believe we're separate. Yeah. And we do find that mystical epiphany that allows us to feel um as if we are petals of the same flower um and um you know i think i've heard you say this before but no one needs to teach a child how to um the experience of beauty in connection with a sunset so there are i mean the theory of relativity for example is you know i'm sitting on a raft um, spatially and, uh, you know, I'm looking at a lighthouse, um, and I see it from a very particular angle and you're on a neighboring raft and you're looking at it and you see it from a slightly different angle. The, the, as a product of direct experience, relativity or separateness feels quite natural. And then Einstein came along and said, well, that's time too. Um, and, and conjoined them. Um, that, you know, the speed of light is constant. And because you're sitting closer to that lamp than I am, you're going to see those photons before my eye, my retina is going to sense them. But practically day to day in the terrestrial world, we never really sense that because, you know, the speed of light is so fast that we never really have those things. But when you begin to, um, uh, when sitting on your own raft becomes the dominant way that you experience life, then you create separateness and you uh, and, and entropy naturally follows. Now, you know, when the Buddha um, described, or, well, the Buddha didn't really describe this, but many Buddhists within the Sangha um, talk about ocean mind, for example. So mm -hmm. ocean mind is the... Uh, cognitive state, if you will, of a baby in utero, in the womb, where it feels absolutely connected and interdependent and as one and part of its mother and its ecosystem and its environment. And then as it's expelled into the treacherous uh, world, 
and begins to develop its senses as you know the eyes begin to less be less blurry and be able to uh, focus and as uh, cognitive abilities develop and you can understand and as verbal acuity becomes more refined um, you are taught to label everything in your external world so there's a microphone there's zach there's ruby behind the camera you know there's a mountain there's a cactus uh, but as then you progress kind of uh, and get older that labeling um, becomes more directed not just towards the physical world but also towards the human world so there's a, a person with a different skin color there's a person with a different sexual orientation there's a person with a higher social status than i do there's a person with a bigger house than i and inherent to that process of labeling everything in the external world is labeling yourself and that is contributes to the formation of the ego or the egoic mind the ego essentially the symbol that you give yourself and you trick yourself into thinking that that's what you are <laughs> and from that place um there is a a lot of deleterious knock-on impacts but i think you know one of the things that actually you know that i've thought about asking you for some time is whether or not that feeling of separateness is innate to being human or is it cultural is it basically how we're taught to see the external world or is it a product of just what being human and having consciousness is and we are laden with the double-edged sword of these five senses that makes us feel separate and then we spend our first half of our life in this process of individuation and then we need to make this mystical u-turn and and open our minds and open our hearts and actually come to that deep sensation of connectedness what do you think i think we're definitely born into that sense of connectedness um and we're also you know connecting at that point to something much greater than human right we're, we're really have a sense of being connected to a, a universal or at least you know galactic experience of connectivity and so within this milky way galaxy which is a very small far-flung galaxy in the course of a billion other galaxies but our humble but beautiful galaxy here the milky way i think we come into it with a deep sense of connectedness that we then lose and the the social biology that seems to be around somewhere between age three to five it starts to fade and by age seven or eight the door is closed on that sense of connectedness and uh, an extraordinary example this happened a couple of weeks ago a colleague of mine was uh, has got two boys three three years old five years old and he was uh, dad's moving on to his office through the house there because everybody now works from their home office and so he's got his makeshift home office and what was a garage a bit ago and he's walking down the hallway and a uh, five-year-old suddenly bolts into uh, his little brother's room and dad's little instinct is like what's he doing to his brother <laughs> I better check on this so he like slows down a bit you know it doesn't come into the room but instead as he peeks around the corner, sees that his five-year-old has gone to sit down at the feet of the three-year-old. And 
the, the five-year-old says, Timmy, can you tell me what it feels like? Because I'm starting to forget. And what he was forgetting is his sense of connectedness and the magic that, that he knew at three. And he knew his brother was still tied to it. And I told that story last night at a farmer's footprint event and this woman came up and she was just crying and she said, you, you made me cry so hard when you said that story because uh, just a couple weeks ago, my son, who is you know, six years old, has had since he could talk, uh, a friend, uh, an imaginary friend is what we call it, but he's had this friend has spent so much time with him. His friend's name is, is Jackson. And when we asked, when Jackson first showed up, we asked, who's Jackson? He said, he's, he's my friend from Africa. He's visiting. And so Jackson became so prevalent that Jackson worked his way into the evening prayers. And so they would always pray for Jackson and would come and go and Jackson would be there. And, and then over the last year or so, she noticed that Jackson was less in the talk. And so Jackson kind of had fallen out of the prayers a little bit. Uh, and so uh, last week, she remembered to pray for Jackson. And so at the bedtime prayers with her son, she's, she says, and we, we lift up Jackson to you, pray for Jackson. And her son interrupted her and said, who's Jackson? And she suddenly felt a deep failure as a parent that the six-year-old suddenly had forgotten completely about the existence of this entity that had been so near and dear to him in these years of connectedness and these years of magic and, and his confluence with all things in the universe and so you can imagine these two little boys three years old deciding at three of like i think i want a friend and they both thought that at the same moment and so they came and visited each other every day it didn't matter that they were continent apart because it's irrelevant they're meeting in the astral plane they're hanging out they're connected and then suddenly the neurobiology starts to shift age five six and the connection is split and so in your, to answer your question, I think it is a combination of an aging mind that gets disconnected from its full potential. And as an, a mind starts to age at about age two, when we can start to mark the, the, detri the decrement of the number of mitochondria per neuron. When we're born, we're at 2,000 mitochondria per cell. I mean, to get 2,000 bacteria to fit in a single human cell is kind of a freaking phenomenon. That's a neuron. Your peripheral cells at, at, at birth or at one years old have about 200 mitochondria in them. So life is teeming inside of us with 200 bacterium in every single cell of your body, 2,000 every single neuron of your brain. And what they're doing is they're converting long chain carbons, carbohydrates, fatty acids into light energy. And that's what the mitochondria do. They break down the long carbon chains and release CO2 and light energy. And so the light energy is at a high enough level in that two-year-old that they're able to function really well in this quantum phase, this quantum reality. So they're able to receive and transmit information in this telepathic space that we start to lose as we're three years old, four years old, five years old. By eight years old, we've lost a lot of the density of that mitochondria. We lose about 5% of our mitochondrial density per year. Um, uh, historically now with the amount of toxicity we see in a given day with the number of chemical 
carcinogens or carcinogen is literally something that kills mitochondria you start to lose mitochondrial density you lose the light energy within a cell you can't repair yourself as fast because you've lost a lot of the, the light energy demanded by repair and so you stop repairing and the average cancer cell has twenty thousand unrepaired injuries just in the genes alone let alone all the other enzymes and metabolic pathways and everything else so a cancer cell is a heavily disordered cell it's the weakest cell in your whole body it can't can't repair itself it's completely dysfunctional it can make less energy than any other cell in your body so it's the lowest common denominator of your existence is in that cancer cell and that's the thing that's going to extract everything from your the rest of your vitality if left in isolation and so what's happening as we are faced with all these chemicals is that we have the experience of a detriment in light energy, which leads to this disconnect from this quantum function. And as we disconnect from that, we layer on to the top of that all of the social programming of the, the pathologic egoic world of separateness and scarcity. When you're three years old, you know nothing about poverty. You know, I've spent a lot of time in the developing world. And a three-year-old in the developing world has absolutely no idea of economies or dollars or uh, they just have a sense of this magic and they live in the magic realm, whether it's in the squats of the Philippines where I've worked or in downtown New York. The three-year-old has no sense of any scale of, of what we would call money or anything else. So there's no sense of poverty. There's no sense of scarcity in that child. Even the child that's hungry uh, is not in the same relationship to scarcity as an eight-year-old that is in hunger. You know? And so I, I believe that there's this loss biologically that's then layered upon it. And it's a great opportunity, maybe. Maybe that's what we did as humans, is we saw the opportunity to start to program children at five. So we said, when should, when should we start school? <laughs> hmm, kindergarten. Uh, yeah, it's really five. hard to teach kids that are three how to behave properly because they're all magical beings. And they, they, it's ir irrational that we would all sit in chairs and memorize somebody else's ideas because a three-year-old is so full of creative energy, which creativity is literally that spark of the divine within us. The three-year-old so busy being God, so be busy being so connected to all of the creative forces within this universe that there's no time to teach a three-year-old rote memory. Everything has to be experiential for a three-year-old. Five-year-old starting to lose that disc, that connection to everything and now you can convince that five-year-old, certainly kindergarten, maybe ma little magic still percolating in the room. But by second grade, third grade, boy, those kids are easy to program. Thank goodness they've learned their alphabet. They've learned the numbers. Start, good job, Johnny. You got that. You nailed two plus two. Good Lord, that kid knew quantum physics two years ago. And you're pleased with two plus two? That kid knew how to like, connect to his friend in Africa telepathically. So much so that it would be so experiential that that kid is right in the room. Nobody ever taught Johnny what what the kid in Africa looks like. He knew what it, he knew his friend was from Africa. Nobody said, "Well, what color is your imaginary friend's skin?" He he just knew that his friend was from Africa and visiting. We become attached to the symbol instead of the reality. We confuse the, the map with the territory, if you will. Um, I mean, I always think about, you know, the two-year-olds, when they wave, they hold up their hand, they turn their palm inwards towards themselves mm -hmm. and cup their hand mm -hmm. because they think they're their mother. Right. And then at some point they go like this 
And they say, oh, no, you're the external world. Here I am waving at you. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's, um, it's interesting, though, that there are some cultures uh, that have um, that are so um, connected to the course of nature, to the water's course. There's a a word in Chinese, um, li, and of course it has no translation because none of these words have real translations. So you have to poke at it, but technically, I think it means the markings in jade, or the striation in muscle or the sap uh, or the grain in wood, which represents the natural flow of sap or the swirl in marble or the course of water in a river. It's connected to this idea of Ziran of things existing in and of themselves, just suchness. So it is. And, um, there do seem to be cultures that manage to live with Lee, that, that part of um, becoming a skillful human is applying the rudder uh, skillfully down the river, or uh, if you've ever sailed, tacking with the wind just right, harnessing nature. And uh, instead of trying to uh, achieve dominion over it or corrupt it for your own particular purposes or extract it for wealth, because we become so uh, attached to the abstraction of what life should be, you know, that it's the money that's going to make me happy. Where will you describe the three-year-old in the developing world? They're happy without the money because they haven't started to place value on something that is an abstraction. <laughs> and so, you know, when I hear about many of your uh, experiences with indigenous cultures, or when we start to talk about how uh, indigenous cultures uh, leverage techniques insofar as agronomy or agriculture that is working with nature's course that is truly scientific um, that uh, that there that there are rays of, of hope because even though we've decimated 97 percent of these populations there is still that wisdom there to attach to and and, and I know even just from like the physical body and this idea of hormesis that we um, that our physiological systems will actually optimize under a certain amount of stress. Well, now we've put ourselves under a tremendous amount of stress, and uh, as a as a as a species, and where will we connect with that indigenous wisdom with rematriating knowledge as as uh, as so many of our uh, guests on, on Sunday talked about. What is your hope there? Hope is simply to observe reality. I mean, it's freaking miraculous. There's nothing linear about this universe. There's nothing linear about life itself. It's all exponential in its capacity. It is so beautiful and it gets only more beautiful. You mentioned the five great extinctions on this planet and yet is the planet extinct 
No, got better every freaking time, better and better and better and better. And so extinction, when you say that word to a human that is afraid of death, is like, oh, shit. We're going to wait, what? We can go extinct? It blows people's mind and their immediate sense is like fear or or sense of denial or whatever kicks in. But if you think of it from a natural state of the word extinction, the word actually means opportunity. Nature sees opportunity with every great reset, which is an extinction event that says, okay, this is this was an iteration of life to its fullest potential at this point. What's going to happen if we ex put that wipe that slate clean in the stress that's caused to organisms as as they go extinct they biologically have to start making new opportunity and so all of the genes in their body start misspelling and they start sending that information out in the form of viruses and so we ended up with this massive data bank of new information when there's stress on organisms that we call the virome or the data bank of viruses which is to say the data bank of genetic potential and with every single extinction, that genetic code left behind, which each gene may have made 10,000 variants, maybe 10 billion variants of itself in its collapsing stress of a couple years or a couple minutes even of that sudden extinction event, every single organism left behind billions of opportunities to respell itself, to reinvent itself. And the 92 elements of the periodic chart are still there, same abundance, same number right after the extinction. The exact same amount of energy is on the planet. The exact same amount of H2O is on the planet. And so all of the elements, the stew is still there. The mirepoix is still sizzling on the stove of life. And somebody's going to add the broth again. And so as soon as the broth is added, there is no effort to go recreate the dinosaurs because look at all of the new potential. And so life says, ah, our whole code of ethics is biodiversity for the purpose of adaptation, adaptation for the purpose of more biodiversity, such that in our distinct separateness, we can, through our sense of the sovereign of the other, see the beauty in the other. And so nature's doing beauty, doing beauty, stepping apart so that it can see the whole and the beauty within the whole. That's what nature has done. And so we went from reptiles to a great extinction to some of those reptiles surviving, but then we get Avi the avian kingdom birds are created and then nature says oh well, that's pretty cool the whole flight thing was around maybe we should really let's try dolphins let's let's try to do the mammal thing we have whales and dolphins and uh, what about what about like a, a monkey that'd be kind of cool like you know some monkeys come about and you know what what if there was a potential for monkeys to to become far more adaptive and creative in their capacity? Let's let's create an up, upright version of a monkey that could use its hands more because it would be able to to walk in a more balanced state upright. So hominids or, the, or, the, or these Homo sapiens end up developing, and so we've got a bunch of two layer creatures running around, and 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 the willingness to come together as communities, they started to be able to specialize, and so suddenly not every monkey was trying to do its own thing and collect its own food. But she actually had a monkey that was really so down on food production. I was like, dudes, I, I love doing the nut collection. I'm, I'm your freaking nut collector. I just can't stand the freaking weaving part. So if somebody would please weave the basket so I can carry my nuts, I'll swap you nuts for baskets. So we started to specialize because we were creative beings that enjoyed self-expression. 
and somebody liked doing the baskets because they, it was an artistic outlet and, and their creative expression of being the divine was to make baskets. And so we went into this creative process of community. And I want to just decode something there as we think about you know, the indigenous nations we've been talking about and things like this. We're all indigenous ours. So we, we all come from nature. We all are indigenous to this planet. We're all homo sapiens. So we're all indigenous. When we look at quote unquote indigenous cultures, it's to say that they were cultures that were at least longer persisting than this, these brief empire rise and falls that last 100 years. This, the 600 nations that were here had persisted for tens of thousands of years. The, the Achuar tribe that we visited last year, 40,000 year oral history. Go down to Australia or to New Zealand, you got the Maori and the Aborigines, Aboriginal peoples. These, Greek, these groups of peoples have these 40, 50,000 year verbal histories, oral histories, and they've got you know, cave paintings and drawings to, to pass the story from generation down over, the, over these thousands and thousands of years. So I think when we, we say there's indigenous cultures, we should just point out that these are resilient cultures. I'm still an indigenous person. I just happen to live in a very unresilient culture that's extremely extractive and extremely short-sighted in its behavior. And so this empire is going to fall quicker than maybe any other has. And so we're in this space of extraction. Therefore, we're not in our indigenous mind. We're in the colonized mind. And we need to decolonize the mind if we're going to get back into this you know, renaturalization of, of our mentality. But I want to point out that the indigenous cultures for having been really long lived and therefore perhaps you know demonstrating something of natural law it wasn't like some sort of bucolic situation either the navajo nation was not like this wasn't like your peacekeepers who were there and just everybody's happy they were they were always taking over somebody's territory they were stealing from other people they, this, this was a warring group like this was not some sort of and yet in the midst of that was this deep culture of giving and gifting and sharing. And so they were able to hold the dichotomy between the two. And the only reason the 600 nations were coexisting for so long is they had developed a council of women that rose above each of the nations and worked together to resolve disputes between nations. So the council of women was this, this higher consciousness that had been expressed from each of these individual parts of this collective. And the nations were willing to work together to imagine this co-creative conscious hyper-consciousness of, of the circle of women because they recognized it was critical to the survival and the, and the balance of the whole system. If, if, if you have decided that you're going to be a little bit invasive and you don't really enjoy farming that much and, and you, you'd rather kind of be out marauding and it's pretty obvious if you make your living for thousands of years stealing from somebody else, you probably don't want to like go and take their entire crop. You should probably go take 10%. You know, maybe you're really mean and you want to take their best 10%, but you're not going to take the 90% because you know they need the seed, so you can go back and steal a little more next year. And so there was, a, even in the kind of malignant, nasty behavior, if you want to make a judgment call on it, which I think, again, is a bit silly to make a judgment on, but if your behavior is to, to, to take from others, and that's going to be your plan for the next 10,000 years, you better... You better have a little bit of a resiliency plan built in there. <laughs> right. Like I, you keep most of that because I'm going to need to be back next year uh, and all of this. And so there was a balance that was had and they understood that this hyper consciousness, something greater than the, than the individual parts could be expressed in the circle of women. And that's what we need to get ourselves back to is a willingness to allow something greater than ourselves to be expressed. 
because that's how bacteria, fungi, and mycelium and all this do this phenomenon of quorum sensing. You can get the microbiome to do hyper-intelligent work that is so much greater than any individual part of that system or the sum of those parts even. When the whole is created, hyperconsciousness occurs. The mycelium, which is the highway of communication and resource di distribution of the, of the fungi, they can actually sense over you know, 30, 40 square mile area a, a, a nutrient deficiency that develops. And maybe there's a natural disaster and a whole bunch of land is washed down and a bunch of silt ends up in an area of, of land and it wipes out the forest and the forest is now depleted in its topsoil. The mycelium will grow in there and it'll start moving nutrients back up to that space from kilometers away. And, and the mycelium are busy doing this hyperbalance of an entire globe. Well, there's no bacteria that knows how, how to do that. There's no fungi that knows the master plan for resource management and soil. No, they, they don't even, they don't have brain, they don't have any central processing unit. So how are they cooperatively creating this phenomenon that we call nature? It's this quorum sensing phenomenon. And so when we talk about indigenous cultures that we all come from that survived more than a couple of hundred years, those indigenous cultures figured out how to do quorum sensing. Let's do the hyper-conscious connection where we can see the greater plan, not from the vantage point of a dominant nation, but from the vantage point of a biodiverse system that holds 600 nations. And so in the end, our choice to be human and stay, or to be human and recycle into the generative possibilities of what will come after this extinction, which I actually think is pretty cool too. Like, can you imagine the jump from dinosaur to human? What's the jump from human to that thing? What comes next after that great extinction? Hyperintelligence, hyper, hyperintelligence and more beauty. There was no wildflowers before the last extinction. Now we have wildflowers. What happens when the wildflowers leave behind their genetic potential in the form of a new virome? What life will emerge on this planet in the next 50 million years is super interesting and beautiful to imagine. But if we're going to stay in play, the one decision we have to make, are we willing to do the connection? Are we willing to be in relationship so that the hyperconscious event can occur? Yeah, it's yeah, fascinating. Um, and I'm not super familiar with that notion of quorum sensing, but I'm feeling it. And um, in a way, it seems like quorum sensing is a transcending of the limitations of our five senses that that make us feel solipsistic that make that underscore the relativistic universe and actually allows us to exist within cooperation and interdependence and connection and indra's net and this um uh interconnected world and you know to bring it kind of back into quotidian experience for people where they're like oh quorum sensing well, that's something out there that i don't experience but we experience the feeling of interdependence and interconnection all of the time, whether or not we're actually paying attention to it or, or not. Any, um, the, uh, there's this notion, Buddhist notion of Brahma Vihara. So Brahma Vihara is a state of being. It's, it's, it's what characterizes integrated consciousness. Basically, the feeling or the sensation that I might have within a deep meditation that I'm not separate from Zach or Ruby or the world or nature. And that experience is characterized by a number of sensations. One of them is 
mudita. So mudita, hard to translate, of course, but to the best of my ability, is joy for someone else's joy and for no other reason. Just the joy I would feel for your joy. Now, that might be a rarity, you know, in our modern world that we feel joy for someone, just for someone else's joy. But it does happen. It does happen. We see something that is deeply emotional and moving, and we're moved. Our genome, there's some sociogenomic thing going on there that our microbiome is producing some sort of influx of serotonin and oxytocin, and that flushes through our neurology, and we, we have a biochemical response to it. So, or karuna, this notion of compassion, of the identification at a soul level of someone else's suffering as your own. And so... Um, these quorum sensing is there. It punctuates our daily life in these small little ways. Um, but it's, uh, in a way, it is something that needs to be refined. For example, like through my own meditation practice, I have found that my regular life outside of lotus position, and that's an exaggeration, of course, but outside of... Um, metaphorical lotus position, my regular life is punctuated by more um, experiences of mudita, of karuna, of quorum sensing, of a visceral feeling that I am not separate. But it is, uh, but it is how I direct my attention moment to moment that influences how many times I actually feel that way. Um, and this is why I'm such a proponent of meditation or breath work or modalities that essentially help us transcend the limitations of our five senses. The Course in Miracles says the memory of God, the memory of God comes to the quiet mind. And, um, and I've heard you talk about God and we use that word broadly in this context, but as a memory. Can you pull on that for a second? Yeah. Obviously, you know, prayer and meditation is such a gift. Um, and I would equate it to the power of silence or the power of darkness as a gift. Uh, I have been full out last week or two on camera with bright lights in my eyes for eight hours a day, like ridiculous amount of light energy being pumped into my body through my eyes. And last night I, I had such the, that a visceral experience, as you say there, when I clicked the, the final light off <laughs> and I just like my whole neurology was like, Oh, thank God that the darkness is here. Oh, what a relief. And so, Sometimes the meditation and prayer serves that purpose to finally turn off the, the energetic input of my brain uh, to my do-do list, my email, uh, or even just human conversation. You know, just shut off that light for a moment and just enjoy the stillness of the dark and of just this deep state of being. But 
I had the experience of, you know, finding myself in a really lovely point in my life right now. I, kids are grown up. My, my long-term relationships have found their separate paths and everybody's doing their thing and living their lives. And I find myself on my path uh, with utter freedom right now. Like there's, there's not, I, I can do life from anywhere. I can do, I, I, I've literally got a global community. I could, I can couch surf for the rest of my life. There's no question in my mind now that I have enough community globally that I never need to sleep in another hotel. I cannot be homeless. It's impossible because I have so many relationships. I cannot be homeless because I have so many relationships. If we see a homeless problem, it's because we have ceased the social structure of relationship. And this is what we see in the cities today. After two years of a collapsing economy that was already starved, already severely malnourished, as Charles said this morning, we were so malnourished in our social connection to begin with. And then we did social isolation as a health policy. And we created globally somewhere around 300 million new families in poverty. We created this crisis of separation and the result was homelessness because we cut relationships. And so as we start to think about that life of prayer, meditation and all of that, there's a tendency for us to think that that's if I could just spend more hours a day doing that. So that's what I did. Actually, I just found myself in this lovely kind of space like, oh, my God, I built this huge house out of logs for years and spent 15 years building this house and I built it for myself. That's amazing. How beautiful. So I thought I'm going to create a sacred space here. So I, I kind of went through my life, kind of collected my sacred, you know, reminders of my path and put them on a little thing and call it an altar because that sounds cool and sounds enlightened. So a little collection of cool things that people had given me over the years that meant something to me and it was signifying the kind of turning points in my life. And I think when I meditate, I'm supposed to sit on a little pillow. So I get a little pillow and put that in front of my my now new claimed, new formed altar and get some amazing art. I got some amazing art that represents kind of my spiritual path again. And turn down the lights low, or maybe just turn off the lights and let that candle glow on my altar. And I'm just like, man, I am I am so freaking close to enlightenment. Or like, look at the situation I've created. <laughs> and I sit there for a little bit. And then I'm kind of hungry. And so I get up and I go and make something and go back and meditate. And then I have to pee and I go pee. The pursuit of life at that altar, if it becomes the thing, <laughs> is the most isolating of ridiculous pursuits that can possibly happen. And so we need to be very cautious, I guess, in the end of what is our definition of meditation? If our med definition of meditation is I need the altar, I need the incense, I need the candle, I need to do all this thing that's going to take us to a certain point and it might be within the silent it was the silent space that i needed for a moment then to just give myself the mirror of dang half a century and i've got a pretty good journey going of death of beliefs recreation of breathe deaths of deaths of social structures death of you know relationship structures death of my religious constructs all that passage through. So the altar became kind of a memory of that. And so what is God's memory? I don't, I, I can't, can't express that in the form of a physical matter. We're gonna have to go somewhere else for that. So I'll try to come back and answer that. But the, the memory of my spiritual journey became my focus for a moment. Mm. 
but I quickly realized that I wasn't going to move past my history unless I stopped sitting at the freaking altar of my past. And so we need to be cautious that we are not worshiping our memory because that tends to be how we create the phenomenon of aging. If I remember the traumas of yesterday and then I make that my reality today, I'm going to look a lot like I did yesterday. And then if I add a couple more traumas on today that reinforce the beliefs that came from my traumas yesterday, I could actually get older today. I could get more separate from my magic, from my youth. And so aging is a process of worshiping our past so much so that we make it our now, so much so that we're not in the now, so much so that now we really want a different future because our now really sucks. And so now we're so stuck in a future we don't have and a past that's become our now, we don't know what it feels like. So that's where I think meditation steps in is be like, dude, get here right now. Yeah. Blessing. But we need to immediately learn then as a social construct is that, you know, consciousness, the consciousness is not something to be achieved. Consciousness exists just like a garden hose exists. Consciousness is not knowledge. Consciousness is not, you know, the God memory. It's the garden hose by which you attach to the fount of God's memory. And it comes pouring through that hose. But this whole pursuit of human consciousness is ludicrous. We are consciousness. We are the conduit by which all of this knowledge flows through. And to say that somebody has higher consciousness or lower consciousness is ludicrous, but consciousness simply exists, just like the garden hose can't be a better garden hose or a lesser garden hose. It's a garden hose. It does the same thing. It moves the information to and fro. And so at this point in time, I think that we need to move from this brief cultural phenomenon of the, the dawning of Aquarius, which was we're going we're to really dig in and screw capitalism, screw the pursuit of building stuff. Who cares about wealth? Let's... Let's get naked, have a good music festival. Let's have sex, free love, all this. Okay, that didn't get us very far. So let's 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 try plant medicine. Let's let's all all do plant medicine all the time. We need more meditation. Good lord, we should have a yoga studio on every block. Nobody remembers what yoga came from or what it is, but we learned some Hindu words, and we we sit and we do our stretching and we do our thing. We feel really good. We reward ourselves with a good Starbucks at the end of our yoga experience we've really achieved today, we need to move quickly now as a community to remind each other what it smells like to make a soup. That's the new meditation for a new future. So we need to reconnect to five senses that remind us that our role here is to be witness to beauty. And Epicurus you know, developed a huge body of wisdom on this 2,000 years ago. And Epicurus, you know, of course, his name would become the, the eponym there for Ep the Epicurean, the people that love to go out and cook food and smell it and taste it and share it. We need to become very Epicurious. We need to re-embrace Epicurean's work. He said that the highest purpose of humanity is to experience pleasure. That got co-opted by hedonism and everything else, and it kind of got turned in our, in our mental mind today into like some sort of perversion or sexual, you know, deviance or something. It was not at all Epicurus's work. He said these five senses have been imbued on humanity such that we could truly experience the bounty that nature is capable of producing. And so we're here to experience the Epicurean journey of a five senses creature that has been designed to see the beauty of a vast nature that extends out into the universe so far. We've developed telescopes so that we could peer deeper into that beauty. 
We've developed microscopes so we can look deeper into that beauty. And so we've got this technological capacity right now to witness more beauty than we ever have in our collective history, just in the last few decades. With that technology, we've developed spy satellites and smart bombs and drone warfare. And so we, we applied it out of a sense of scarcity and a sense of separateness for the egoic co-opting of those five senses and the belief that we were separate and therefore there was scarcity in the universe. As we reconnect and we start to cook soup together and we smell that together and we taste that together, that's the meditation that will transmute everything. That's the meditation that would allow quorum sensing to happen. Because meditation in the memory of my spiritual journey at home in front of some self-made altar, self-proclaimed altar, is not the journey that we're, we're going to solve our current crisis of disconnect through. And so we need to start to live a prayer. We need to start to live a meditation instead of practice a meditation. Mm. That's, that's beautifully put. I think the practice of meditation, to the degree that there is a goal for it, is, is not um, to be a kind of a solitary figure in lotus on a cushion in a cave or, or whatnot, but it is the punctuation of that experience of the present moment than in the rest of your life and um you know honestly you know when i see you in your fullest efflorescence when you are speaking to a group like you did the other night here on the patio i'm like that guy has a quiet mind right now he is just grooving with the present that's what meditation is really it's just a grooving with the present moment that's it and, and you're right that we spend an inordinate amount of time dissecting the trauma of our past and projecting that trauma into the future as an anticipated negative memory and that is a recipe for a, a thoroughly dismal kind of life um, so when I, here's one thing over the last year that I've learned from you as I tried to put all of these different inputs into a cast iron pan and, and marinate <laughs> and distill them all down into something that I might drink in a thimble, a good soup, a good soup, um, is that life can be distilled into a confection of energy, information, and connection. That I am really a system or systems of energy that's here in this terrestrial plane for a certain period of time until my mitochondria wear out. And I possess a certain amount of information Sure, in my genetics and in my upgraded epigenetics and in all of the knowledge that I've been able to accrue through meeting people and reading and, and through all of the cellular information that I have and that I am living moment to moment in my, in my highest self anyways, in connection. Um, and that that is the experience of what it is like to be human is to be animated information in connection. 
and just lose, let go. Like Nirvana, literally the 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 translation of the Sanskrit is blow out. That's what Nirvana actually means. Just blow out, blow out that fear of death, blow it out, you know, and just know that, you know, I, my organism will pass away and hopefully I will be courteous enough that my body will go out into a field somewhere and uh, decay properly such that it provides the soil with its nutrients to grow the most magnificent broccoli and asparagus and sunflowers and tomatoes and corn. And I will just be part of this continuous link of, of captured fossilized sunlight and I get just to pay that forward. And that has been a big shift in the way that I've been able to understand my own life, to be honest. And that is a direct product of being in your Alpen glow or your glow. Um, and it's something that I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for. It's a new kind of understanding of what it is like to be alive. Mm. And that is uh, vibrant, you know, um, it's exciting. You know, every day, honestly, I wake up with a certain curiosity and and you know let me you know just say that i've always been in, interested in the metaphysical but it hasn't been until the last year and a half or so and i credit you to significant degree because of this that i've been trying to understand the metaphysical through deeply studying the physical because that is where the foundational intelligence of God, of the universe, of the logos, that's where it's patterned. And so when I started to learn through you about soil, about the microbiome, about epigenetics, about metabolism, of like, okay, I'm in a low glycemic state, my pancreas is producing glucagon, that's triggering like a state of lipolysis, and I'm breaking down triglycerides into free fatty acids and some ketones, and that's fueling my mitochondria, and I'm creating energy, and that's great. Now I'm in a little bit of like a hyperglycemic state just because I kind of like gorged on a pint of ice cream, and now my pancreas is producing insulin, and you know, but understanding those mechanisms, and that directly out of your work, has made me understand the yin-yang of my own organism, that every system is a sunny side of the mountain and a shady side of the mountain. And if I can align myself with the intelligence of nature, I bring those into some kind of sensitive coherence. And that has just been like, a joy for me. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to being human. Yeah. yeah so yeah. the the joy of being human again takes us back to those five senses because it, it is ironic that uh, an egoic and mind looking for meaning again has to go and study metaphysical stuff, which is so ironic because that's exactly why we chose to be human right now, so that we weren't metaphysical. Yes. And so we, we needed to get out of the meta to become separate enough that we could see the beauty of the universe. I, I, I can certainly see a situation where a soul that's an infinite energy sort 
source that's got a very unique sacred geometry to it that's different than all these other light energies around that we would call other souls so we have an energetic center that you know has a very unique geometry there for a atomic physics property there for a biophysics expression but to come into particle state light can be a particle or a wave at the same time to come into a finite particle state and be in a body as an expression of an infinite being is to experience the five senses and so it's ironic that our our inclination in a split mind egoic realm separated from our sense of abundance in god we go rush around and start wondering why are we here what are we doing <laughs> what's our purpose yeah what is there a medical metaphysical world is there something beyond what we can see right now it's ludicrous it's like yeah. that that's where you've been yeah. for eons in the metaphysical world you're being called to smell the soup watch that's the steam right. rising from the pot see this the glint of light across the eyeball of another human that's in tears across the table from you see the see the laughter yeah, peel through the room uh, in those bright smiles and then hear the vibration within you when that laughter hits you and then you laugh and you feel this bubbling joy inside of you this irrepressible thing and it's just that's what it means to be human and there can be no judgment on the journey there is no right or wrong or good or evil there's a human experience that is all natural again everything we do is natural uh, there is no such thing as an unnatural cause on this planet because we are a finite system of nature. And nature may be misbehaving on somebody's judgment scale right now, but it's ultimately taking us back to the divine state of being witness. And if we have to recycle our energies into the next metamorphosis of life after the sixth extinction, we're not going to regret that because I've set enough hospice beds to know that the soul does not grieve the death of its body at all at all it is a release it is a relief and when you pull somebody back from that veil of release and, and you resuscitate them and they pop back in the body and the first thing they say is why did you bring me back it was so good so bright over there you can't even believe it and i was in complete fellowship with everything and i was accepted exactly as my soul i am I am so accepted in that space. Why'd you pull me back into this egoic split realm? It was because you wanted to do the journey of separation that you became human. You freaking signed up for the separate journey so that you could be witness, so you could have that pedestal. So it was Archimedes, right? Give me a, give me a pedestal to stand on. I'll move the the earth with a stick, you know, or something like that. You know, so we needed the pedestal to see the beauty of the planet. Uh, my best friend right now is uh, spending six months up on the International Space Station. It's the second time he's been up there in five years, and he's currently the captain of the crew up there. He's up there with a few Russians and a couple of Italians, one crazy person from Indiana. You know, it's like, you know, just like a great crew up there. And Chell is just a, an amazing human being. He called me on my cell phone the other day. He's like, I got five minutes to talk before the satellite goes over the horizon. So we're talking and talking and, uh, you know, about nothing. He, he called me about my freaking 20th thing, you know, reunion for my medical school class. I'm like, dude, that's what you're thinking about up there? Like, Jesus, I thought you would be thinking about like, you know, the perspective of the cosmos and like you're outside the veil. Like, he's like, no, no, I can't wait to see everybody. We haven't seen each other in almost two decades. Like, can't wait. Wow. That's freaking amazing. 
some dude floating in space, all the technology that it got him flew up there on SpaceX, for God's sakes. A private rocket took him up there. Dragon takes him up there. And he's sitting on the, and he's pondering his old buddy from medical school. What it means to be a finite being is that relationship is the penultimate expression of connectivity and your desire to see the other so you could see the beauty in them. He wants to see the beauty of a face that, that shaped his experience. He remembers what it feels like to be seen by my face. It feels good to him for me to see him because I freaking love that dude. I love how it feels to be around because his laugh is so jovial and he's in such joy when we were just a freaking goofballs, you know, we were med school, super serious, but we were ridiculous. Like we laughed so hard until we'd peed our pants at night. I had young kids, so I'd go home and read to them and we'd get them in bed. And then I'd come and meet Shell again at like nine o'clock at night. We'd study until two in the morning. In the med school alone, you got like this massive metropolis to yourself. And so we'd study because we liked and unfortunately, we just freaking loved the studying, too. And we were so good at bouncing that just our sense of awe of the human body off each other. And so we'd get it down pretty quick because when you're excited about something, it, it sticks and you learn it. So we were learning really well, like. I was a very mediocre student then got to med school and met Chell and it was like I, I could not miss like I honored everything because Chell honored everything because we were having so much fun. So by by one thirty in the morning, we were definitely had some spare time. And so we would bring laser pointers, which at the time were pretty awesome. And so we had these laser pointers and in this medical school, you have these long hallways and we would we would experiment on how many times we could get refraction down hallways and all this stuff and run around. We, we, make mischief everywhere. That's Chell Lindgren, who's the captain of a crew up in, in on this International Space Station. Now, that dude is just freaking fun to hang out with. And that's why he became so successful. There's there 15,000 applicants for, for nine astronaut positions. You kind of got to be kicking ass to get the, into the nine, you know. But the reason he is kicking ass in life is because he freaking is living the five senses. He loves everything. He loves his kids so much and they're all grown up now and he loves his job so much because he's so awestruck by the mechanisms of things and, and the beauty of things. So Chell, here's to you and your whole crew up there in the International Space Station. I just want to thank you for thinking of us humans down here and giving us the perspective as you guys sit up there looking into a cosmos without the end apparition or apparition of our atmosphere you can see so clearly the universe out there and instead when you are given just a few minutes of free time you call us back down here and you you want the reunion to happen and so we look forward to reunion with you chell uh, later this year because uh, we will be witness to one another because we have five senses that give us the experience of separateness when in fact we are all connected but we needed the separateness to see each other's beauty and for the beauty, we can fall in love. And I'm really grateful to be in love with you, Jeff. It's yeah, good stuff. It's really good. Yeah, we can't conceive the thing that we're looking for. If we did, it would ruin the whole thing. Um, if I were to sit here and tell you that heaven was just eternally sitting in a church pew singing hymns, <laughs> that sounds dismal and ghastly, but I would ruin the whole thing. You know, we on some level don't want to know. You know, we create mythologies and methodologies, whether they be gods or science, uh, in the name of prophecy. 
because part of us feels like we want to know. We want to know the future. But we really don't on some level. We, we want to make soup. We want to make music. We want to dance. We want to do the things that are non-representational. You know, I'll finish with just a story that just happened to me. Um, so my wife was out of town on multiple weeks or multiple things. And I was trying to be dutiful dad. And my, uh, my daughters, particularly my middle daughter, is just a wonderful dancer, beautiful dancer. And um, I went down to pick her up from, from um, the dance studio. She goes there five nights a week. And, uh, you know, I was a little bit late, self-admittedly, <laughs> not as on top of it as the other parents. And so um, when I arrived at the studio, uh, she was the last one there. And, um, you know, dance studios, I guess, market themselves by having these big plate glass windows, you know, in the front. Um, and I was, uh, you know, feeling a little guilty that I was late. So I was kind of rushing up and then I just stopped for a moment. And I watched her and I watched her dance for no audience. And she was just yoked with the present moment, like action and intention fusing together. And just this, I was just awestruck with her. I was lost in her lostness. And, um, it's like I didn't even know my own daughter in a way. It was so beautiful. And um, finally, like, you know, I, I fluttered slightly too close to the light. And, um, and she noticed me noticing her. And everything about her dancing changed. It got like, oh, I got to impress my dad. It was so sweet, really. Like her jumps got you know, higher, but more kind of efforted. Yes. <laughs> efforted. Totally. And, uh, and finally, you know, I think it was Debussy ended and I walk in the studio and you know, she's kind of very blase at that point. I'm like, Oh, Lolly, you're such a beautiful dancer. You're such a beautiful, Oh, whatever dad. You know, I mean, she like swaps out her, her ballet shoes for her air force ones and immediately put on the Air Force One mentality too. And I'm like, okay, you know. And um, I walk out the studio, you know, with her. I'm feeling just very close to her at this moment. And we get in the car. And right before I get in the car, um, a woman um, grabs my elbow. And, uh, and I turn around. And uh, she's like, you must really love your daughter. I said, well, yeah, I mean, of course I do. What do you mean? And she was like, well, I was watching you watch her. Mm -hmm. And you were so lost. You were so at peace. You were completely there. You were all there. And <laughs> of course, she was experiencing me in the way I was experiencing my daughter. And, um, 
And then, of course, immediately as I uh, acknowledged that she was watching me, then I was the one that then became awkward. Right. And I was like, oh, well, I'm not, yeah, I mean, of course I love my daughter. And, uh, yeah. well, we're late to now I have to go. But, you know, then I, I had a moment of reflection on the, on the way home. And, um, and that memory of God, that eternal grace, that the consolidation of things that appear to be dismembered can be put back together like Kintsugi art, like musicians putting a piece together from a cue sheet. Things can be remembered. And um, so I've been trying to live within that glow, within that space. It's such a beautiful vision. And, you know, the quantum physics level, it's so interesting that they've been able to prove out, you know, for a long time now that as soon as you observe an electron, it changes its spin to the opposite and equal. You know? That's right. And totally. so uh, the observed electron changes its beam. And so you were changing your daughter in the observation of her before she realized you were there too, which is kind of cool because while her conscious mind perhaps didn't realize it, that her quantum reality was experiencing another human being witnessing the beauty that she was doing in that dance. She did have an audience uh, and the audience was you at that moment, but the audience was actually also the timbers of the room. Hmm. The audience was also the floor that she was dancing upon. You could feel the impression of her toe shoes on it. And so to be in your highest bliss state, you'll realize that your audience is infinite in all directions. And the audience within you, you've got you know, roughly a quadrillion bacteria that are observing the crap out of you and actually are observing your crap. That's what they look at all day long. <laughs> and so the observation of the audience that we are within is in fact what changes the spin of our electrons to determine that we will become human and that we will express ourselves today. And so then when we talk about the microbiome, we are talking about a vast biologic audience that is participating. And you mentioned, you know, being witness to me speaking in front of a group. The reason I love speaking in front of a group is that when I stop efforting, hmm. yeah, when I stop the efforting of speaking and make myself simply available to be spoken, then the audience always makes me speak the right thing that they want. And, you know, my staff mentioned it when we walked out of our, our, our big event last night because they had watched me for eight hours do a fundraising event and then go to a completely different space in California and do another one. And they're like, your message was completely different and it was perfect for that audience. How did you know? I, I, I didn't know. That. I didn't know most of those people. Like, I, I don't know where they're coming from. But if you make yourself available to the audience, their observation of you will change your electrons such that you will express something new. And so I expressed something new last night because I made myself available to be observed. And ultimately, it's our egoic minds and the charade of being a parent that makes us so efforted in our parenting such that we're not present for our children, such that they learn that the right thing to be an adult is not to be present and to be efforting in everything and to put up a perfect facade and to definitely don't be a magical, creative four-year-old. Like, that's a disaster. Like, yeah, that, that person shouldn't own a house. I got to get serious. I got to go buy a house. So for all of these things, we have the opportunity to remember our role is simple, is to be witness to the beauty.
So we got to keep dialing it back, keep dialing back. And if you get good at the beauty, if you get good at seeing it, the universe loves being seen. It's going to show you more of it. And so this is the kismet kind of experience or that, you know, wonderful experience that if you start to recognize miracles around you, that power of attraction gets more miracles happening in your life. And Einstein said there's only two ways to see the world. Either everything's miracles or there's no such thing as a miracle. And that's that's our one choice that we have as to our belief about the universe is, is it miraculous or is it not? So if we can return to our two-year-old self and say, yes, everything is miraculous and connected, then the, the next choice is, are you willing to connect? And if you're willing to connect, you will immediately have the experience of being witnessed and being witnessed to. And that is a human relationship that's worth calling back for if you're out in space. Hmm. So let's, let's keep calling back. Yeah. Well, the beauty in me sees the beauty in you. Thank you. Love you, brother. Love you too. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Zach Bush. You can take Zach's commune course, Vital Health, with a 14-day free trial of commune membership. Just go to onecommune.com slash Zach Bush. And if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort we put into this show's creation, and we really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. This is not one of those shows where I prattle on for 15 minutes about ads or marketing sponsors. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. And of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. I read every single email that I receive and I try to respond. And lastly, I would like to thank the folks that make this show possible every week. Jake Laub, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fretz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. <laughs>